Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAP supportive view podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these episodes are meant for medical education only, not for diagnosing anyone's eyes. Each week we take a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we talking about this week, Andrew? This week we're talking about infantile capillary hemangiomas. It always brings to my mind, do you remember Ari and all of us kind of poking fun at him every time he was like trying to distinguish the different kinds of hemangiomas in ophthalmology? Ari is one of uh, our favorite co-residents if he's listening to this episode. If he's not listening, then yeah, I remember crapping on Ari all the time. I, <laughs> I, I think he... Uh, I don't remember specifically for this reason, but yeah. Well. No, yeah. Like he had the misfortune of asking a very good question one day, like what's the difference between a capillary, a cavernous, and a choroidal hemangioma? And then after that point, every single time it came up, we would just be like, Ari, please explain this difference to everyone. Uh, yeah, you know, I do I do actually remember this. <laughs> this is one of the many reasons that we would pick on it. Was, it was a good Ari. exercise in seeing how asking the wrong question makes you really, really learn the material. Because yeah. <laughs> after three years of this, he became an expert. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe get him back on for this. I know he came for that an episode been a- already, right? <laughs> Whoops. So we'll chat about these capillary hemangiomas and if I was actually trying to shore up some pathology that, you know, most of our episodes, we haven't delved too much into ophthalmic pathology yet, because I think that's a very image based, but at least we can talk about some of the different tumors and their characteristics and stuff. When it comes to orbital tumors, there's just so many different kinds. They're all based off different tissue types. And just in this subcategory of if you limit yourself to vascular like masses in the orbit there's still a bunch of different things so the capillary hemangioma is just one of them we're going to you know it'll take us many episodes to cover this broad category of orbital vascular tumors yeah i mean that's some people's like careers right no it's like orbital tumors but yeah but yeah. I, unfortunately, Ben, you and me have de- committed ourselves to covering everything in the BCSC. So, yeah, at some trouble. point in the far-flung future, <laughs> maybe twenty years from now, we'll be well, done. The apocalypse has already happened. We'll finally <laughs> do. Now we'll do lymphatic orbital tubers. <laughs> oh boy, let's jump into it. And I figure we can start talking about well, the clinical presentation first. What does this thing look like? And then yeah. epidemiology. Yeah. So. An infantile capillary hemangioma can actually show up anywhere. You know, they can show up on the skin. I mean, the majority of the time, they'll show up somewhere that's not on the eye or around the eye. But the times that we, as ophthalmologists, care about it is when it shows up on the eyelid or deeper in the orbit. When it's more superficial, then it'll look more like kind of a red mass. Or if it is deeper in the tissue, then it can appear more blue or it can just appear like a mass, like some kind of enlargement of the overlying skin. For whatever reason, it's usually present in the superior nasal quadrant of the orbit, or you know, the at least the medial corner of the uh, eyelid. Andrew, can you tell us about the natural history? This is something that I find is actually quite testable. Mm-hmm. The numbers and stuff of when these show up and they, how they progress over time. Sure. Take us through it. Well, this is... Infantile, so definitely something that affects not just kids, but actually newborns or recently newborns. They usually show up right at birth, or if not, then it'll, it can arise within the first few weeks of infancy. And then it actually just gets worse. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger, usually for the first six to 12 months. 
by the time the kiddo's walking around a little bit at age one, it starts to spontaneously involute and go away on its own or regress. Usually it's completely gone by, if you're lucky, age three, the further end of the spectrum's age seven. So it could be there for a good long while before it ultimately goes away. And despite how the spontaneous regression makes it sound like, oh, it's benign, don't worry about it, it's going to go away on its own, it can actually cause a lot of developmental problems if you leave something alone like that and if it's bad enough to do that. We'll talk about more of that stuff, but think of amblyopia. If the thing is big enough that it's actually causing the eyelid to get in the way of the visual line of sight, then it's going to contribute to amblyopic development, so you really want to deal with it before it just waiting for it to go away on its own. My helpful way, by the way, to try to remember the numbers is I usually try to remember that it shows up plus or minus within the within about five weeks of birth. So it can be at birth, but it can also show up a little bit after you know five weeks. Mm. And then it's usually gone plus or minus five years. So you said three to seven years old, you know, so like plus or minus two. But um, hopefully that is you know somewhat helpful within about five weeks and then goes away, but within about five years. Okay. So thanks for taking us through the natural history. What about a differential? Stuff that can look like it, regardless of where the mass is. This is where the tricky part where, you know, we should rope airy back in. Because other vascular malformations like cavernous hemangioma, that's on the differential too. And we'll talk a bit about the differences between a capillary versus a cavernous hemangioma. But other things that can look like red lesions around the eyelid or orbit, definitely Sturge Weber is one. But the Port Weinstein of Sturge Weber can really look like maybe a small, like a big old capillary hemangioma. There are other vascular malformations like lymphangiomas, and then there can also be things, bad things like metastatic neuroblastoma. Those are usually more hemorrhages that appear in the eyelid and such. But yeah, definitely it can be should be under differential when you see someone with what looks like a hemangioma to you. Mm-hmm. Although the word the name sounds familiar. Choroidal hemangioma is not really in the differential because we're not talking about something in the eye. We're talking about it on the orbit. And right. by definition, the choroidal hemangioma is of the choroid. Right. So, you know, let's come back to capillary versus cavernous hemangiomas. Can you tell us about the pathologic differences between the two? Sure. So, this is stuff that you'd expect to see on a histo slide. We'll just sort of describe it, at least the buzzwords that you need to know about. A capillary hemangioma will be unencapsulated, whereas a cavernous hemangioma will be encapsulated. The two are kind of the same, but just sort of different sides, different ends of the spectrum, because they're both made of a bunch of like either blood vessels or blood, blood encapsulated spaces. So in a capillary hemangioma, it's like you've got all these tiny, tiny little blood vessels, capillary-sized, and they're separated by pretty thin little fibrotic areas. It's much more cellular as well than an adult cavernous hemangioma. And I think that's because, you know, everything is in a capillary hemangioma is just much more granular. You're dealing with the capillaries being the little blood spaces. In an adult cavernous hemangioma, the blood-filled spaces aren't blood vessels, they're just sacks of blood, the septae between these blood-filled spaces in an adult cavernous hemangioma, those septae are actually thicker and more fibrotic than the little sort of intervening walls between the vessels in a capillary hemangioma. 
And then a tip in terms of age distributions, the capillary hemangiomas are much more common in children. And the mnemonic everyone uses for that is there's a P in capillary for pediatric, whereas cavernous are you know, much more common in adults. And then capillaries versus caverns. Capillaries are the smallest blood vessels, so tiny little baby blood vessels. Itty bitty. Okay, are there any associations we need to know for capillary hemangiomas, like anything else to look for besides knowing that we found it? Mm-hmm. And even though these are less common, they're very testable. Probably the most tested association is that of the facies syndrome. FACES itself is just an acronym, P-H-A-C-E-S, and it's a syndromic just collection of different things that happen to people with this. We'll talk about each word in the acronym because that's just one of the manifestations of FACES syndrome. There can be many all at once. Truly, nobody really knows why FACES syndrome happens. The pathophysiology is pretty misunderstood. It's thought to be an embryologic defect somewhere in the first couple weeks of development which is why you get so many random things across the whole body. But here they are. P stands for posterior fossa abnormalities. H stands for hemangiomas, which is why we have to be careful of that association with capillary hemangiomas. A is arterial abnormalities. C is cardiac defects. And the big one there that's very buzzwordy is coartation of the aorta. E is eye malformations. And S is sternal abnormalities. So I'll take the hemangiomas part because the two parts that are relevant for ophthalmology, of course, are the hemangiomas and the eye malformations, the E and facies. So mm-hmm. I'll take the H and you take the E. Okay. Okay. So when you have a hemangioma that's associated with facies, it's usually much larger than your kind of average capillary hemangioma, whether you know whether that be associated with the eye or not. A key thing to know is if you have a hemangioma that's big that involves the V1 distribution, so not just like a little superior nasal orbital thing, but you know, involving the eyelid and that kind of the upper facial skin that is with cranial nerve V1, then you need to get an MRI for cerebral AV malformations because there happens to be an association with those two. Okay, what about the other eye, eye problems? Yeah, not to make this a facies episode, but here's the other things that can happen to the eye in facies syndrome. It's just a grab bag of stuff. Choroidal hemangiomas, not just in Sturge-Weber, apparently. Uh, exophthalmos, colobomas, posterior embryotoxin, quick shout out, also seen in Axenfeld-Rieger, right? Mm-hmm. Which means, implies that maybe there's other anterior segment things weird, and there can be. It's also glaucoma-related, optic nerve hypoplasia, outright glaucoma, just mysterious optic atrophy, and then microphthalmos, strabismus, some called cryptophthalmos. I don't even remember what that is. Do you? That's where the eye gets hidden by the eyelids, usually. Like it's a, yeah, hidden in the crypt. Like the eyelids never like unfuse. I mean, so be, I mean, that's a long list. I don't think that's something Pretty that I've ever memorized. Yeah, yeah, in my board of view. But I mean, I think if you remember facies associated with abnormalities or formation of the eye, like all these things are eye developmental issues with basically any part of the eye, colobomas of the retina, you know, ambiotoxin for the uh, anterior segment, optic atrophy for the posterior segment, etc. So, Facies as an association, yeah, that's testable, fine, but it actually elevates and jumps right into your management strategies when you're talking about whether or not to use propranolol or beta blockers for a capillary hemangioma. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit, but while 
essentially propranolol and beta blockers are the right thing to do for capillary hemangiomas. They're the absolute wrong thing to do for facies. Just besides facies, there's one other association we should know about capillary hemangiomas, which is Kassebach Merritt syndrome. So this is a condition where you have large hemangiomas anywhere. You know, it doesn't have to be the eye. Of course, it can be, you know, visceral hemangiomas as well that lead to thrombocytopenia and disseminated, oh God, (laughs) disseminated intravascular coagulation. Don't worry. I had to double check it too. Yeah, that right. (laughs) No, no, no. Okay, cool. Disseminated intravascular coagulation. Which obviously can be fatal because these patients, they consume all their platelets as hemangiomas expand other platelets and coagulation factors. So they start to bleed like everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think it's actually interesting because folks may know from this podcast, my wife is a maternal fetal medicine specialist and well, fellow. And um, she actually like ran into this a couple of times. It was like the, her first experience with it. But I was like, oh my God, really? I know that from my board review. She ran <laughs> into DIC or Casabach uh, Merritt. Merritt syndrome causing DIC in, in, uh, oh my gosh. in a patient. Yeah. Okay. Management time. So we found someone with a capillary hemangioma. Now what? Do we just panic? Mm-hmm. That's usually my first management decision, but just what would you do, Andrew? Lamaze breathing. <laughs> <laughs> what, what breathing? Lamaze? Isn't that what they teach for like pregnancy? I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, I don't know anything of all. Let me get my wife on the line. We'll find now. <laughs> Just deep breathing, meditation exercises. That's what I do. And I get, and I would ask someone to get an MRI. <laughs> okay. What's the MRI for? The MRI, it's one thing if the capillary hemangioma is really superficial, like, oh, there it is, big red splotch on the eyelid. But then you might be wondering if there's anything deeper to that that you can't see, especially if that's all it presents as. So MRI can kind of distinguish it in the orbit, especially, and it also plays a role in distinguishing it from other orbital tumors. Go figure, right? But what could you see on an MRI that could already help you navigate the differential? Well, some elements are how big those vascular channels are, which ostensibly you could see on a high-resolution MRI. Again, if they're really fine capillary-sized vascular channels, that supports a capillary hemangioma. If they're big old huge blood sacs, that's probably something else more like a cavernous hemangioma or a lymphangioma. There's also some talk about blood flow, and that's not something you might be able to see on an MRI, or at least the velocity and the rate of the blood flow, usually you'd rely on something like Doppler to check that out. And apparently you can make a distinction between different vascular tumors based on whether it seems like there's high or low flow velocities. I'm a little confused by this because I see different sources saying different things about which is high flow and which is low flow. I have a feeling it's not something we have to worry about though. But let's just say, if we have to go with anything, let's go with the BCSC, which says these are high-flow lesions. Capillary hemangiomas are high-flow. You might see different things elsewhere on the internet, but let's go with the BCSC. Yeah, yeah, especially for test-taking purposes. Okay, we talked about this before, but I mean, these things go away on their own the majority of the time, so why even worry about it? Cosmetic reasons? Mostly these are happening to little kids and anything that might get in the way of their 
usable vision can lead to amblyop amblyopia, either either deprivational if it really drags the eyelid down and just covers the eye completely. Or at least covers a visual axis, yeah. Right, 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 thanks. Or refractive amblyopia, where, you know, maybe you've got a big old mass on the eyelid that's not weighing it down so much that it covers the axis, but it weighs down enough so that maybe it gives you some weird astigmatism on the cornea. It's just literally indenting that spot a lot. And just the weird refraction, if it's not caught and given glasses for, could lead to bad amblyopia. Yeah, remember, you know, a few things. One, we will do a congenital ptosis episode at some point, but remember, any ptosis in a child should be carefully examined by a pediatric ophthalmologist because of the refraction issue. Even if it doesn't look like significant ptosis to the naked eye, any ptosis can give you astigmatism, which, and remember, astigmatism has a much lower threshold of causing amblyopia compared to things like, you know, myopia, et cetera. So any, any cause of congenital ptosis should be investigated. Okay, how do we treat it? So besides treating the amblyopia, how do we treat the Kepler hemangioma itself? A lot of good results with, like we mentioned before, propranolol and beta blockers, but mostly propranolol seems to be the go-to beta blocker. You can do either topical gel or oral propranolol. Of course, you have to be careful for the beta blockade effects from that, including bradycardia, including potential masking of diabetic hypoglycemia. But you also have to, like I mentioned before, be really careful that they don't have some kind of arteriovenous malformation in their brain, or that they have, don't have some kind of cardiac coartation of the aorta, like in facies. Because giving those folks beta blockers can really contribute to acute ischemic events, right? Yeah. The Another management thing that some people, you know, you could do are steroids topical injected or even oral steroids. We won't go too much more into the management decision-making on when to pull out steroids, but do you remember in any kind of injected steroid can lead to things like skin necrosis, fat atrophy in that area, if they're injected, can even lead to retinal emboli. Remember things like tramcinolone is particulate, and that can end up in the retinal arteries in case reports and cause a retinal artery occlusion. Even more high level is what to do if none of that stuff works. I mean... You've heard a lot about maybe pulse dye laser therapy helping the really superficial ones. Seems to be not a bad option. But if it's deeper or something, is it something that you could excise surgically? Technically, it's possible, but as the BCSE says, you gotta have, quote, meticulous hemostasis. So good luck. It's quite a bleeder. By definition, it is. So be really careful doing that. Apparently, you could also potentially do radiation therapy to it, but that's going to have a ton of consequences, including, of course, cataract, potential future malignancy, even bony hypoplasia. The BCSE also takes pains to mention for other tumors, you can inject sclerosing agents, which I think there's some benefit in things like lymphangioma. Don't do it for these capillary hemangiomas because it can lead to severe scarring. Which is the entire point for the other bigger ones, like lymphangioma. But in this case, it's not recommended. So, that's it. Capillary hemangiomas? But this is definitely a high-yield tumor to know um, because of how dangerous it can be and how consequential it can be for kids. And sorry, we keep saying tumor, just orbital masses. Yeah. Just an orbital mass. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears with the number 4. 
We've also got our website at eyes4ears.com with a number four there also. Yeah, and if you'd like to support the podcast, a rating review on iTunes or wherever you found our podcast is really helpful. Thanks for your time. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.